Thank you for joining Capture Higher Ed for The Buzz, Capture's podcast on higher ed news and trends. Today, you're in for a treat. We have a special guest with us, Rob Fleming from Jefferson. Jack Clett will introduce Rob soon, so we aren't going to give you any spoilers. Uh, but thank you, Rob, for joining us here today. So as usual, we're going to start out with some quick takes. So uh, I want to know from my friends that I have colleagues on the phone, Jamie, Jack, Kevin, who wants to be first to tell us what you're seeing in higher ed? Well, uh, I think I'll go first this week because I might have like the one that maybe causes the most pause. Um, and so I try to typically have a fun quick take, but this week is really just kind of like this, what's the industry going to do kind of quick take. And I think this really comes out of an article that was, po- uh, that was posted this week uh, in the Chronicle. Uh, that relates back to some of the NACAC changes that are going on and uh, a study that was recently published from EAB about uh, institutions and the reactions that they're going to have with especially the transfer market and how transfers are are obviously this very large uh, bundle of students that in many cases previously was a little bit less attainable. Uh, and now, now more than ever, they are uh, up kind of quote unquote up for grabs. Uh, but anyway, the, the biggest part of this study, uh, the, the article that I read, which is called Poaching Enrolled Students, Once Taboo, Now Okay. I encourage you to take a read of it. Uh, but the statistic that really hit me was the fact that only uh, 48% of students who were asked said that they would definitely go back to the college that they chose uh, in the first place, which puts a large percentage and actually a majority percentage uh, on the I'm not sure what they're going to do list. And for my uh, interest in the undergrad world, as I think about recruitment, this poses a very interesting topic uh, to be explored uh, yet again at a further time. So that's my quick take today. That's been on my mind a lot. These NACAC changes are really starting to kind of come into their own. Um, and it's just a very interesting uh, uh, interesting read, but also even more so an interesting, what am I going to do about it uh, article. Yeah. Hey, Jamie, this um, this is Jack. And, and uh, I guess further uh, proof that we do not script this show because I do not have that article in front of me at the moment. But I did want to mention that I did read that article, I think, at some point um, this week. And... The thing that stood out to me, I mean, that stat that you mentioned is huge, but the thing that stood out to me, I believe, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot, um, but I believe it was 19 or 20 percent of all uh, first years uh, at institutions will actually transfer. That's correct. That is the right number. That's that's, according to the National Student Clearinghouse. Yeah, that is uh, that is pretty. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised that that number is is as high as it it is. Uh, you yeah, know, basically one in five. Um, but that's a uh, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Who's next with their quick take? I think you are, Jack. Since All you're right. talking already. <laughs> Good point, Jamie. So listen, I'll give you my my quick take, and that has to do with Georgetown, guys. I want to talk about Georgetown. So Georgetown. Yeah. Uh, So Georgetown is the latest institution to commit to uh, divesting from fossil fuels. 
Um, so this kind of goes in line with what we're going to talk uh, to uh, to Professor Fleming about um, uh, later in the show. But uh, its board of directors on uh, this past uh, uh, Thursday approved uh, a policy saying uh, the university would divest from public securities of fossil fuel companies within the next five years. And from existing private investments over 10 years, they will immediately freeze new endowment investments uh, in companies or funds whose primary business relates to fossil fuel exploration um, or extraction. Um, so that's a that's a big deal for Georgetown, and that comes with some pretty massive implications um, for institutions mm -hmm. that choose to 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 go that route. Um, obviously, Georgetown, um, uh, I think, fairly proudly said that you know climate change factored into the university's risk assessment. Uh, and continuing to invest in, in oil and gas companies uh, as well. So um, really good to see that. And uh, this comes right after um, Harvard University's Faculty of Arts and Sciences passed a motion calling for Harvard uh, to make a similar commitment uh, with divesting from fossil fuels. So uh, clearly that is uh, uh, an action that institutions are beginning to take as they look at their own impacts and what they're doing in terms of leading on uh, the, the climate crisis. Amazing. I love it. Very good topic, Jack. Yeah, see that? Is, that? is that a spoiler for our guests this afternoon? Could be. I don't know. Well, thank you, Jack. Definitely very interesting. Kevin, what are you seeing out in the world? Well, you guys had some real ones, so you know I'm going to come in with something fun. So as we start talking about student loans, we have everybody talking about a student loan crisis. Well, the College Avenue Student Loan Company recently intended to send an individual a statement related to a student loan they took out for their daughter's tuition. There was a glitch in the system and they ended up sending the same person 55,000 versions of the same letter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Yikes. So this, this one individual, Dan Kane, received 79 bins of mail, each containing <laughs> 700 copies of the same letter addressed to him. And that letter was a statement related to his uh, to, uh, loan that he took out for his daughter's tuition. So oh, the real much? question is, do you think he got the message? <laughs> well, it, according to the, the write-up from CNN, the U.S. Postal Service spokeswoman said that the delivery of 55,000 letters was uncommon. <laughs> um, and as this ties into our sustainability, I'm sure we could say that one letter would have sufficed, but 55,000 may prove a point. Um, but right now, he's not entirely sure what to do with all the letters which are currently stacked in his garage. What do you do with 55,000 versions of the My same word. letter? Recycle them. <laughs> Indeed. Imagine oh being gosh. the recyclers. I got to pick that up. Go ahead, Amanda. Sorry. I was just going to say, like, I think you definitely uh, should ask the student loan company to reduce your bill by the amount of postage that they spent sending you all these letters. Oh my word. Okay, but it gets better. Compounding the mistake. <laughs> oh, no. There's more. letters had an incorrect payment amount. <laughs> The company apologized for the mistake and said Kane would receive a new corrected statement. Stop. 55,000 of them. 
So they're going to mail him another letter. <laughs> that is correct. This oh, time, according to CNN, quote, this time, Kane hopes it will be a single letter. <laughs> that is an amazing story. Kane needs to oh. sign up for e-delivery. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Amanda, you're up. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, guys, I don't have a news article supporting us today, but I have an a report as your Iowa person resident on the line here today. So if you wanted to know who the front were, front runners were in the election, I could have told you because I was in one of the caucus rooms and the results came out just as um, it finally came out how many days later to the rest of the nation. But what's interesting about it in higher ed is that the front runners currently are Mayor Pete and Bernie Sanders. And they are uh, neck and neck by like 0.100th or 10th of a point um, between the two of them. And I think it's really interesting to look at, well, what would it mean if Mayor Pete or Bernie were selected in terms of higher ed policies? Pete is more of a moderate in higher ed policy. He believes in providing free college for those who need it. Whereas Bernie is on the other side, um, wanting to have a free college for all, meaning two-year, four-year public and tribal colleges, universities, as well as a $1.6 trillion student loan debt um, recovery to be erased of current loan. Uh, so Kevin, that guy could have his loans forgiven, right? And then you wouldn't have to deal with it. But anyways, um, <laughs> my point is that it's interesting to watch because the, with the two Democrats, you think usually like, oh, well, it'll be one way if it's a, you know, a Democrat that's hired or one way if a Republican is hired or not elected to be president of the United States. But right now, the Democrat Party with the two front runners are very different in their um, views on higher ed policy. So even within that own party, it will be very interesting as we move into the eighth Democratic debate and New Hampshire primaries, which you guys will have seen by the time you're listening to this podcast. So um, I wonder what that crystal ball will be as to how that New Hampshire primary will go. Be interesting to see for higher ed. It will be interesting, I'm sure, but maybe not as interesting as all that happened in Iowa. No, no. That will be the story that keeps on giving. But I got to tell you, uh, guys, that I find it amazing. This is how quickly things can change in politics, because if you all remember, we a few months ago, we took a look at the um, the higher ed policies, college affordability policies among the major candidates. And what is fascinating is that we did not review uh, the policies proposals of one mayor, Pete Buttigieg. That's I correct. I blame that on our political analysts who failed to prepare us. With... <laughs> <laughs> we failed sorry, to predict guys. the future. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. look, Mayor Pete at the time, I think, was polling around uh, five, six, seven percent. So, um, yeah, what a, what a, what a, what a difference a, a few months can make in the world of politics. Well, if you're interested in what Pete's uh, stance is, since, you, since he was clearly overlooked in our, in our last podcast, today's Google research taught me that uh, Pete will make public tuition free for 80% of Google. Google. I said Google again. Sorry. You can cut that if you need to, or I'll keep rolling with it. 
Pete said that public <laughs> tuition is free for 80% of American families, including families earning up to $100,000 and many, many middle income families with multiple children. Um, he also has a substantial tuition subsidies for students from families earning up to $150,000. So what it does is it, ex it extends uh, the ability to have free college very far up into different wealth rankings, just not what some would see as the super rich or the well-off, I wouldn't even say rich, but the well-off uh, of our uh, nation. So, um, and, and I did not see anything on uh, student loan debt forgiveness as a part of his policy. So like I said earlier, uh, not to belabor it, because uh, we don't talk politics here. This is just the stances that are out there and reporting on what is the current balance is between um, the two front runners of the Democratic Party. It'll make a difference for higher ed. We'll be interested to see what happens. And there you have it, folks. That is the nose from Iowa for the year. <laughs> oh, it's snowing outside. <laughs> you just want to know the weather, it's snowing. There you go. Is it? Is it? Are you sure it's just not... Uh, Hanging chads that are falling from the sky. <laughs> now that was an expert comment, Jack. That was fantastic. <laughs> Florida throwback. What, what? Uh, we're going to move on to the section of our program where we talk about higher ed and a main topic. What is the big topic that we're tackling today? It is going to be sustainability. And we are very pleased to have a special guest on with us today who he is faculty. So he is legit, everybody. And Jack is going to give more of his actual credentials and introduce the topic of sustainability on campuses in higher ed. Jack. Well, thanks, Amanda. And Buzzland, I think that we are in for a treat. Uh, this is uh, a pleasure for me to have Rob Fleming join us because Rob is not only a former colleague of mine um, at Thomas Jefferson University, but is uh, also a friend. So, uh, Rob, thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm glad to know I was your friend. I always wondered if that was true. <laughs> well, listen, now is the part where I get to uh, embarrass you by uh, praising your, uh, providing accolades and, and praising your uh, academic and research experience. So uh, bear with me here while I do your proper introduction. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. So uh, Professor Rob Fleming. Uh, serves as the director of the MS in Sustainable Design program uh, at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, as I mentioned. Uh, Rob received his Master of Architecture degree from Virginia Tech, where his thesis, uh, The Seeds of Sustainability, really set the stage for his research passion. Uh, since then, Rob has spent the last 25 years dedicated to understanding and promoting a sustainable future. Uh, he is the founding member, or a founding member, I don't want to give you all the credit, Rob, but you are a founding member of the Delaware Valley Green Building Council. You are an educator, uh, a speaker, um, an author, having written or co-written four books, the latest of which is Sustainable Design Basics, recently published by Wiley and currently available where books are sold. Welcome, right? Rob. Yeah. Where are books sold these days? I always wonder. Hey, thank well, you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Hey, you got it. And for all those who uh, want access to your books, we'll put a link because uh, just about all of them are on Amazon. So uh, you yes, can have access to all highly of ranked your... as well. Yeah, highly ranked, positively reviewed by Rob. Correct. 
Five stars. Five stars. Yeah. So, Rob, you and I, um, gosh, I don't even know. We're we're going back like 15 years, I think, to when you and I first uh, first met. And I was um, director of graduate admissions when you launched the master's program in sustainable design. Um, And we had all kinds of fun, I think, uh, marketing and recruiting folks for that program. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here uh, about how many students do you think uh, have uh, have graduated with uh, sustainable design master degrees? Oh, that's not a spot. We have graduated 250 students over the last 13 years, and we're really, really proud of that. And students from about 34 different countries have now attended our program, both online and on campus. Awesome. Um, I want to kind of dovetail from that to talk about uh, just kind of what we're uh, experiencing uh, as it relates to to climate change. We're going to obviously focus a lot of this conversation on um, higher education and the role that colleges and universities play, uh, not only in terms of just their physical uh, planning as it relates to kind of the built environment on their campuses, but also um, what their responsibility is for education uh, around sustainability, uh, around uh, climate action uh, as it relates to the the, the climate crisis. Um, earlier this week, uh, Bloomberg, uh, the media company, not the presidential candidate, um, <laughs> right. uh, reported distinction. Important distinction, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Reported that uh, climate change simulations are are running a bit hotter than usual, projecting increased heating of the planet by five degrees Celsius. Um, I'm, uh, if, if I'm correct here, usually that comes in around two degrees, three degrees uh, Celsius. Um, though obviously that's concerning. Uh, just kind of taking a broad-based view, what is the current state of climate change? Mm-hmm. Well, I always start with a statement that would say that 2050 is the new 2100. So most of us see these reports that in 2100, we're going to be underwater, dot, dot, dot. And in 2100, we'll have no species left. And what's happening now, because of the way the environment is changing, we're really looking at 2050 as as a flashpoint for climate change having significant, if it hasn't already, significant impacts. And the reason for that is pretty simple. We tend to see climate change as a slow, gradual rise of temperatures over time. But what people don't realize, it's all a bunch of feedback loops, amplification. So as the snow caps melt, as trees are removed, the planet heats up even faster, and that feeds back into a cycle of impact. And ultimately now, I think you all know that in Siberia, the tundra is now melting, releasing millions of tons of methane into the atmosphere. Methane is 20 times more powerful than CO2 as a global warming driver. So we got to start thinking and stop thinking of this as a gradual shift towards a new world and really as an exponential and existential threat for 2050. Yeah. And I, I know that there's um, there's a lot of ways to to tackle this. And I think we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that uh, that can be done. Um, you're part of the the College of Architecture and the Built Environment at Jefferson. Um, so let's kind of start off uh, there with uh, with the built environment. So uh, from that perspective, um, what can be done uh, in terms of the built environment, in terms of structures, and, and and what is being what is being done to help? Yeah. So now it breaks down into two broad categories of action. The first one being the obvious one, which is to reduce CO two emissions and reduce your impacts. 
and create a lighter footprint on the planet to try to stem the tide and, and pump on the brakes for climate change. That's number one. That would be called sustainable design. The other choice is to say, hey, it's too late. We're already there in 2050 and there's really not much we can do about it. So how do you think about a built environment in 2050 from a design point of view? And so we use the term resilience or resilient design to talk about how we design projects when sea level rises for real. How do you design buildings when maybe energy isn't so prevalent and you have to begin to have passive strategies again? So really we're in a very difficult time from an educator's point of view as to which area should we be focusing in more at this point. So institutions um, have joined uh, the effort by focusing on LEED certified buildings. Yep. Uh, and when I say institutions, obviously in this context, I mean colleges and universities yep. um, and other sustainable aspects of, of their, their physical plan. And, and really looking at climate change, I think a, a little bit differently in terms of impact. Because um, you know there, there are our uh, our friends uh, at the Chronicle did a, a wonderful um, piece uh, looking at the threat of climate change uh, impacting the physical campus. So you yeah. have examples of of Washington College along the Chesapeake uh, being flooded. Uh, Amanda, over in your uh, your wonderful state, um, where they're you know where as we mentioned, they're still counting votes. Um, we're, we're in a situation Thanks. <laughs> where, where the University of Iowa, uh, part of that campus sits in a 100 year old, uh, floodplain. Um, you have California colleges like Pepperdine, uh, and others being threatened by, um, uh, by, by these wildfires. Uh, so I guess all that kind of tees up. What is it that institutions are doing uh, from a kind of physical plan perspective, um, and is that enough? Yeah, so that, that question actually really does go back to what I just said. So if you want to go from the first group of folks that are trying to prevent climate change and reduce carbon emissions, lead certified buildings are one way that you can begin to sort of stem the time and, re and reduce your carbon footprint. Uh, I would say that there's there's great variation between the level of LEED certification. When I see LEED Silver, I'm really not impressed at all because anybody could do that under a normal budget. So we shouldn't be spending, we shouldn't be having press conferences when we reach LEED Silver. LEED Gold is something that requires some real effort and has some real impacts, but ultimately really we need something called LEED Platinum or there are new ratings to talk about today, like, for example, the Living Building Challenge, yeah. which basically says that buildings and projects should be actually making the world better, cleaning the water, generating energy, providing food, et cetera. So all of those things universities can, should, and will, and are doing, and we'll talk about that some more. But to your other point about all these natural disasters impacting the operations of the university, being a direct threat to the continuation of the university, that's resilient design. So how do you design a campus that floods? How do you design a campus that's um, susceptible to wildfire? And so you'll, you'll see, for example, um, now we're raising buildings up for, for one, but more to the point, mechanical rooms in say at Washington University are now gonna be moved to the second floor. Because what we found out in Hurricane Sandy was that any building that had a mechanical room in the basement was done for two weeks. Yeah. Minimally. Mm -hmm. And so if you look in Miami, for example, they're raising all the sidewalks. So now you have what's called split sidewalks or the I'm sorry, they're raising the streets 
and the sidewalks are depressed where the doorways are. So we're looking at actually, this is not some future science fiction thing anywhere. This is real. New York and Manhattan is building a series of seawalls and other kind of resilient infrastructure moves to try to address the fact that it's going to flood again. We know it's going to flood again, and flooding is not always this little soft ripple of water that comes up to the edge of your building. We're talking about storm surges, king tides. We're talking about really people's lives being at risk, flash floods. And so this, this for a campus now has really shifted campus planning uh, priorities to think about how do we, how do we persist in a, in a challenge. And furthermore, there's a social issue about that. How do, how do the people on the campus interact with each other in a time of crisis? So it's not just physical planning, it's actually social and community planning that goes into that as well. Rob, I have a question for sure. you. So um, I, I think one thing that most colleges have in common are old buildings. Well, most yeah. of them have old buildings. Yeah. So right. with all of this historic architecture, which is old college campuses, which luckily have sometimes been preserved, even though sometimes you may not want to live in that dorm. Uh, talk to me about what can be done for the old buildings so that you aren't just, I, I understand how to like build a new LEED certified yep. building, but what do you do yep. with the old ones? Yeah, great, great question. And, and we say in the sustainability world and the architects hate it, the best building is the building never built. If you really want to stop climate change and you really want to be serious about your mission and vision of climate change, you mm. have to begin to make really hard decisions around what you do with your existing buildings. There is so much energy already put into those existing buildings that that footprint has already been expended. So now to come back and say, if we're not going to not build, which is not realistic, we've got to start to think about renovation, restoration, historic preservation, all of these things, by the way, dovetail into non-environmental issues. So the more that we preserve our campus, assuming we have great buildings, the more we preserve the heritage of the university, the more we preserve really some sometimes the marketing edge. I mean, you guys know a campus is mm -hmm. in part made up by its buildings and its outdoor spaces. So uh, there are multiple, multiple reasons to always renovate before building new. And, and I know you're going to ask me, and if you don't, you should, well, what if we get a donor that gives us $100 million, Rob? What do we do then? You're going to ask that? <laughs> Rob, what if we get a donor that gives us $200 million? <laughs> oh, even better. Yeah. So uh, this is a great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, and this, again, brings up what sustainability does to campuses is it creates nightmare scenarios where people are forced to confront their fundamental ethics and their core beliefs and the desire to see a thriving, financially sustainable university that's gonna be here for another 200 years. As they say, no money, no mission. But I always say, no mission, no money. And the sustainability is a core mission principle for many universities. The questions are, which ones of those universities are serious about it? And we'll get to greenwashing later, I'm sure. So if I have $200 million, I am gonna build new, I'll be honest. But I am going to not build a lead silver building or a lead goal building, I'm going to build a building that generates more energy than it needs to function. I'm gonna build a building that cleans water on site. I'm gonna build a building that grows food. I'm gonna have daylight. I'm gonna have operable windows. I'm gonna do all the things that we know are good instead of building something that has that signature look that people can say, I did that. Because it's not about I, it's about we, right? Rob, I love the way I love the way you're talking. I love the way okay. you're talking. I was uh, watching a TED Talk earlier this week on the living building challenge. And for a long time, I've wanted to uh, 
uh, erect a straw bale house and my wife won't let me do that. And oh. uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's okay. a slow, it's <laughs> a slow train. Uh, yeah. I did convince her to install a, a solar system onto our 200 year old house right now. So we're, nice. we are working toward carbon neutrality. Oh, I'm impressed. They're very good. Yeah, Rob, I think you have a uh, a new enrollee in your master's I, program. I think so. I think so. Jamie we'll talk Gleason. later. Yeah. <laughs> yep. We'll give you a discount. I, Don't worry. So, listen, I want to... There's uh, no tuition remission at Capture. That's okay. right. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Way to sell the company to future employees. Nice. <laughs> 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 For experts in higher ed, you already have your degrees. <laughs> Indeed. There you yeah. go. So, all right, Rob, let's shift a little bit from the role that institutions play in terms of um, resiliency and uh, and and making sure that their built environment is uh, is is dealing with this with this challenge. Um, let's move to what uh, universities and, and and colleges do best, which is education. Um, mm. So, question: uh, What role? should colleges and universities play in, in educating students about the climate crisis um, and are institutions leading here are they behind where they should be and i'm, I'm talking about not just the people who are obviously going and majoring in um, sustainable design or environmental science but but regardless of major Wow, there's a lot. There's a lot there, and this is a charged topic because we have a lack of self-awareness in higher education about what it really means to teach sustainability. Uh, for me, sustainability is part of a worldview shift into the way we see everything. And it's so fundamental and so powerful that really it is not something that I think is effectively tacked onto a curriculum that's existed for 100 years. In fact, I would argue that that old curriculum that we're still stuck with is part of the reason we're in such a jam. That those old models of we take natural resources, we maximize profit, and we have a great life is really part of where we're at. And I don't think universities yet have really proven the ability to innovate quickly to create new models of education that are going to really generate leaders. And I would argue that sustainability is really more than a technical or financial challenge. It's a leadership challenge. Do you have the ability to go against the trend and start to have the tough discussions about what's it really going to take to bring society forward into the next few generations? So. Um, that's a long way of saying, no, I don't think that universities generally have responded very well to the challenge, the imperative, and the, really the moral responsibility to educate leaders to be leaders within the sustainability movement. Too harsh? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, we're sometimes a little rough on uh, higher ed around here, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's fine. Um, I do okay. have a, a kind of a... It doesn't a, sound a, fine, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do You're have a, a related question, I think. Yeah. And it really has to do with a term that you mentioned earlier, which is is greenwashing. Yeah. So what, one of the things that we talk about here is really focusing uh, on the promises that institutions make um, to students, to prospective students, uh, to their current students, to those who ultimately become alumni, um, and remaining authentic in terms of your ability to fulfill those promises. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just something really important in terms of uh, recruitment yeah. uh, and ultimately enrollment uh, at an institution. So that said, um, let's talk about uh, greenwashing for a moment. 
what is greenwashing and is it happening oh. in higher ed? Oh, well, yeah. So I'll come down off my high perch now and I'll calm down a little bit. But I, I would say that um, greenwashing is a real is, is a thing because you have uh, sort of a gap sometimes between the marketing office and then the people that are making decisions around the university's level of sustainability. So we call this a, a structural misalignment. It's not unique to universities. It's unique, it's unique or it is endemic to all companies to how are you going to walk the walk? Is it possible to walk the walk? And I can tell you that college students are very sharp and the minute you're not walking the walk, they are gonna point it out and they're gonna make a statement and, and good for them. I mean, they're paying, they're paying the tuition um, and they have the right to expect a university to be not, not just compliant with green initiatives, but really to be a leader in the world of sustainability. Universities are some of the last, is one of the last great business models that's not wholly driven by profit. And therefore, you would assume that universities would be leaders. And many universities are leaders, by the way. I've been to a lot, I actually went to a living building conference up in New Hampshire where universities were presenting their carbon neutrality plans. So when I start to see a carbon neutrality plan and I start to see steps to reach that plan that are staggered and, and really realistic, I start to see reality and I start to see not greenwashing, but the opposite of leadership. Um, and so, I, and, and this goes with, I just want to point out, this goes with courses. Professors greenwash their students by saying, and we're going to cover sustainability in addition to all of the other things. That right there is a flawed statement, right? Sustainability comes first. We call it a first principle. And everything else, if you're teaching law, you teach sustainability first. You talk about how law then reinforces the goal of sustainability. It's a flip. In architecture school, right, is, is, good, is, is sustainable design part of good design or is good design part of a larger sustainability initiative? And the answer is yes. But we don't teach it that. We teach everything backwards. So, we're, so Jack, we're looking at um, not only a situation of greenwashing, but a situation of really paradigm shift for universities. And so I don't I actually don't get upset anymore because I'll take, you know what, I'll even take the greenwashing because those words in print drive some authenticity and some at least some responsibility on the back end for the university themselves. So recycling, as you guys know, is the big one, right? Um, and there was some accusations that we weren't actually recycling. There's some distrust in the system. So I said, okay, let's go follow the truck. And we went and we followed the truck and we watched the truck dump the recycling and the recycling bins at the center station. That was a big thing for the students because they were not sure or not confident that that was really happening. And then now we had built a sense of trust between us and the students. It was great. That's authentic. That's awesome. Awesome. Hey, Rob, I have a question, if I, if I can. Sure. You know, one of the yep. things that comes up with this topic when I think about it is, uh, and I think this is probably the nature of trying to think bigger than myself, but um, it's often very overwhelming to think of how can little me do anything in this big world of, you know, pollution and carbon footprint yeah. and things like that. And, you know, how, how do you address that with your students? And then maybe even more so when you're having a, you know, discussion with your provost or college president, like how do you help to continue to make that imprint on someone's brain to that, that it's like these little things that make a big difference over time 
Yeah, we're really talking about a two-tiered approach for each individual and society now. The first tier is the obvious personal responsibility to take as much control as you can over your own sustainability. That means, for example, and these things are small, but they add up, you know, carrying your bag to the supermarket or, I don't know, getting a hybrid, right? I just bought a plug-in, but I bought a used plug-in. So I thought, hmm, I'm going to do a double. goes back to existing buildings. So I think... Uh, we do have millions and millions of people that are adding up all of these small little acts of kindness is what we call them. And ultimately, that does have a huge impact and, in fact, has had a huge impact over the last 10 years. We would be much worse off in our carbon emissions if we hadn't done all the so-called little things. Um, but now what we're doing is asking for a second tier of involvement. We're asking each person within their institutions to take a leadership role in sustainability. Who in your office is really the champion? Mm -hmm. of sustainability and are you running programming for your colleagues so that the institution that you're involved in starts to make sustainability central to its mission and mm -hmm. central to its vision and operational because we're we're not going to get the job done with individual lifestyle changes we live in a fundamentally materialistic culture and so there's only so much we call that being less bad there's only so much less bad stuff until we really have to get transformational sure. and really change change the paradigm it's a tough one i know yeah it's mm -hmm. tough it is. Oh, so, well, let me finish the question there. So let's, uh, Jamie, let's take that to the next level. You go to your provost and you say, provost, I'm an individual taking leadership in my organization and I want to talk about the next levels of our carbon neutrality plan. Do we have a carbon neutrality plan? Yeah. Right there and then you've exhibited the second level of leadership. Leadership can be as simple as holding people in control accountable and mm -hmm. asking, hey, what are you guys doing? And, and you guys have been around long enough to know when you're being greenwashed or not. You say, well, in 10 years, we plan to have, and if you hear a lot of vague answers, you know that there's more work to be done. If you hear a concrete five-year plan for the next 50 years, you can start to feel confident that you're holding them accountable or holding your sure. own organizational accountable for operations. Okay, awesome. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, we've talked about um, some examples of where institutions could do more. Um, I want to make sure that we're giving kudos where kudos are due. Yeah, so there are enough. some uh, there are some signs of uh, signs of hope that exist, and some I think some shining examples of folks who are doing uh, some awesome things. Uh, so do you have some of those to share with us today? Um, sure, I have I have examples. Um, yes, and I think you're right. I've been coming off as re relatively negative, and that's because. I'm 25 years in on this and I'm getting a little impatient. But the truth of the matter is um, there is a lot of remarkable things that are happening at universities around the world. I don't know if you know that Georgia Tech just built their first living building challenge building. And I got to tell you, it was an expensive building. And so when you start to see universities like that put significant capital dollars behind what we call flagship projects, right? Mm -hmm. You start to say, this is really where universities can shine and lead. Um, even at even at a Thomas Jefferson University, we built our first Lee Gold building here. It meant a lot to the campus, and it meant a lot to the city of Philadelphia. Universities play a huge civic role in the institute in the neighborhoods and that they live in. So when we start to do these really high-end projects that are pushing the boundaries, um, we're building capacity not just for the university but for the communities themselves to start to see their own pathway towards doing something beyond the norm of say a lead silver building or something. So Georgia Tech. Um, amazing. And then let's just talk about what universities are doing for offsets. So one of the big problems of carbon neutrality, as you guys know, is the campuses aren't big enough to generate enough solar or wind on campus to offset the application. So what we have to do is find legitimate offsets 
that say, for example, our university has 30% of all its power by wind. Um, there are other universities that are 100% wind or 100% solar. Don't underestimate the importance of that because what they're doing is they're forcing the market to change. They're telling mm -hmm. the market that these are the things that are important as an institution. And of course, the largest one that is very controversial, and you probably edit this out, but there is a call for <laughs> universities and institutions to divest from fossil fuels. And this is something that the students are really looking for. And I don't know if any have actually done it yet, so I apologize for not doing my homework. But there you start to take a real bold leadership move, right? Um, and so how, you know, and this is the, oh, and I guess I should explain this, that there is a rating system called STARS. So if a university has a STARS rating, it means they've made a certain level of commitment. One of the great things about STARS is that you can disclose your investment practices as a university to show where your money is. And in that case, you just have to show it, and then ultimately that starts the discussion on divestment. That is not done by many universities because of obvious political economic ramifications. So I'm not saying that you should do that, but I'm saying that is coming. The students are bringing it, and we should be ready for that, and we should be ready to have a discussion about that. You know, Rob, I'm happy to report that we actually have a partner college that we work with up in Maine called Unity College. Yep, Unity. And they made a they made a commitment to divestment, uh, and it's they're very excited about it. And they should be. That's that was probably not very easy to do. Yeah. And it has it has a lot of ramifications on the functionality of the campus. Has uh, cost implications, but ultimately over the long term, they've displayed the leadership that a, that a public or a private institution in a neighborhood or community can show. And you have to lead, right? I mean, that's that's one of the big takeaways here. You have to lead, um, and uh, and it's not just a much. It's not just enough to to talk. You have to actually right. Uh, act. Um, it, it, right. And Jack, if you're not nervous and uncomfortable when you're having conversations about sustainability, you're not leading because you're not really pushing the boundaries. Mm. And people don't like to be uncomfortable. We're hardwired for comfort, but the reality is these are uncomfortable conversations because they require mission and vision alteration and also walking the walk but yes thanks for the unity college example i'm going to share that with my students rob we want to thank you uh so much for joining us uh today uh this was awesome sure. um this is a super important topic and thank you also for leading on this uh this issue for uh well gosh it seems like forever <laughs> i think pleasure. he just said that he just called you old no. I think this is, this so, is where you Rob, plug on. I, I have one last yeah. question. Yeah, please. Uh, we're not going to end your interview, Rob. Amanda has something to say. Oh, I see. Okay. No, oh, just one last question. I always have to try to throw in something funny. Okay. So when please. I was, I, I took geology at Appalachian State in my undergrad. Nice. And here's the one thing that I learned about sustainability. I want to see if you agree with this. So okay. I learned that you should not, that, that if you're, if you're, you should not buy a front row beach property. You should buy second row beach front property or second row property. And then you wait for the hurricane and it washes out the front row. And then you have front row and then you sell it and make a lot of money. And then you move back a row. That and how to identify a bunch of trays of rocks is what I learned in geology. That is, <laughs> okay. Is that sustainable? Is, is that how we uh, look, at, look in the future and... <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we, it's pretty good. One of the things we didn't talk about is financial sustainability. So if, if you believe that your own financial wealth is part of your sustainability plan, 
Sure, I could support that. Uh, but generally, from an ecological point of view, I would say don't buy near anywhere near a beach at this point. Um, and if I could, I'd like to just replug one of my books, if you don't mind. And I don't know how you guys can edit all this, but do you want to ask me again? Uh, can I re can I plug? Plug away. Yeah, please. Because not only do I have a new book coming out called Sustainable Design Basics, which teaches students how to do a net zero energy project. I have a book that just came out last year, which I'm really proud of, called Sustainable Design for the Built Environment. And that book is published by Rutledge, Taylor Francis, and is written for anyone in any field, including geology and including people who are building beach houses. So that one is for, I really recommend you get that. It is a textbook. So this is sort of a plug to all the professors out there, the department chairs who really think it's time to have a foundational sustainable design class that helps students learn how to lead. This book will be for you. Who did the uh, cover design on that book? That book's beautiful. That would be a combination of me and some sort of secret source of information I can't reveal. <laughs> How about that? I love that idea, though, because I feel like that is, you know, as I think about this topic, and I feel like I maybe think about it a lot, um, but I feel like, you know, as we are, you know, like I said before, that that little piece of the puzzle in higher ed, you know, there's so many institutions that are out there that, and some of them are sitting in these buildings that are, you know, old. Some of them are nice buildings, but some of them are just old, like buildings that wouldn't be considered nice, right? Like we all drive by the yep. schoolhouses that are like built in the 70s, and we're like, oh, yuck, that's like a that's a building that you wish they never would have built. But I feel like that little piece yeah. for me is like, how do we get that institution? to think about this building in a, in a different way. And my alma mater had this building that was built in the early eighties or mid eighties or something. And it's got this huge like roof, you know, just great open roof system. And right out in front of it, it's this huge soccer field. So there's no solar canopy or you know, solar obstruction at all. And it's like, if I could get that, you know, institution to fill that roof with solar panels, mm -hmm. it's just one little thing. And I just, I kind of wish that every college, uh, president would have someone on their board or someone on their staff, maybe like you, Rob, that's kind of like, you know, poking them in the ribs all the time saying, we've got to push a little bit further and push a little bit further when it comes to this. We're there. There's one of me in every university. somebody who sells solar panels. I'll there give you, you go. Now, you can refer this them. is how it starts, right? We're starting to lead already, just right here. That was an example of leadership. So Amanda, you just did your part to help bring that project to fruition. Good work. Well, Rob, we were... We, we were friends until you told me I couldn't live next to the beach. I live in Iowa City. It's a subject. Thanks Sorry for coming. <laughs> Rob, kidding. I've been sustaining my silence, which our listeners know is very difficult for me. I, I did notice that. And uh, there's one kind of sustainability that as the advancement person on the, on the uh, ah. talk today, relationship sustaining. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think there's a wonderful opportunity when we talk about sustainability to think about the fact that our current students are our next alumni. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, our company does a lot of work with uh, with Gen Z, which is really in right. tune with uh, with this whole movement. And one of the things that I get really excited about is having some visibility to the passion that Gen Z has for sustainability and their consideration uh, and just about everything they do when it comes mm -hmm. to the environment. Um, and those students are going to go through our classrooms, they're going to go into your classroom, and they're yep. going to become our alumni. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that sustainability offers an amazing opportunity to keep alumni connected once they leave. That's true. Um, and that is so true. I, I think it's not only sort of just sustainability when they're on campus and that sort of thing, 
but relationship sustainability, Rob, it might not be the hundred million dollar person that comes to you. But what if you got what if you got a hundred people to give you a million dollars or a million yeah. people to give you a hundred dollars? That can all happen from some of the yeah. initiatives that you're creating and keeping people engaged. There's, there's no doubt about it. I don't think any amount of money, low or high, is it's all good because when when somebody mm -hmm. gives money, they're investing in the institution, in the students, the faculty. If somebody came and said, I want to donate ten dollars, Jack Clett, um, to Jefferson, I'd be like, come on, bring on that ten dollars, right? Um, for example, we just had one of our alums um, give one hundred thousand dollars for a scholarship program around sustainability leadership. Jack, you know him. We'll talk later. Um, and and that that goes back to the faculty as well as creating programs that are attractive to alums that are. In, in sync with what alums would like to see. And the younger alums do like sustainability and he's a relatively young alum. So that was a great moment for us. I hope a great moment for him and it will have a lot of impact for many years. That's a great story. And Jack, that's great that you offered to match that. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Well, Amanda can, uh, Amanda can lead on this issue by uh, giving me a raise. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! It all comes all right. back to Jack. You notice that? Oh, it's coming back to Jack. Earn your, earn your keep. <laughs> oh, so Jack. good. Jack's so good. Well, well, Rob, uh, Jack tried to tell you goodbye once, but we wouldn't let you go. So this time around, we might let you go. Uh, but thank you for joining us today on the Buzz. We think that your topic is definitely very interesting um, because each of our each of our schools that we support have different opportunities in order to be able to either protect their students from inclement weather coming at them, use their existing buildings in a new way, or build new buildings in a better way so that it's sustaining our environment rather than taking away. So thank you for teaching us those things so that when our listeners work with their campus leaders, they're better educated on the options uh, that are in front of them as well as you spurred them to take action to hold those accountable that should be held accountable to the institution as well. So thank you, Excellent. Rob. It's my pleasure. Yeah. I enjoyed it. And uh, and for our listeners, let's make sure that we go ahead and uh, provide links uh, on our Buzz page uh, okay. to Rob's books. Um, and Ecoman. Oh, uh, I'll and send you a link to an episode. <laughs> now, an episode of Eco Man and the Skeptic, yep. Rob's uh, now archived podcast. And uh, also, let's make sure we link to uh, the Sustainable Design Program at Jefferson so you can see all the great, great. work um, that has gone into uh, to that program um, for, uh, for its students. So, Rob, thanks again. Okay, great. Pleasure to be Thank here. You. For our final segment of The Buzz, we're now going to go behind the curtain. That is where we find out from Capture Higher Ed what we're learning in Capture Labs and with Capture Elite Research. So today, Jamie's going to lead us off talking about buy more, but work less. Jamie, yes. what great tell does that mean? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I have to give this massive shout out to our data science team because they do this research that combines all sorts of the efforts that we make on a, on a given year, and they do a, a strategic reduction and they and they give us these awesome points that we can think about about how we're growing and about how the industry is changing and all this stuff um, but that topic of you know buy more and work less is really kind of a play on a maybe a historical adage that we have used around capture of 
what some companies do in they recommend that you automatically, if you buy more, then you'll get more. Um, so the, the interesting part about the, the piece of research that, that we read, uh, the behind the curtain this week, was that with the changing uh, audience that we're serving, sometimes buying more won't always get you more unless you're doing things with those students. So let's just let me let me uh, put a finer point on the pencil. Um, if you buy 100,000 search names every year and you do the same thing that you did last year with 100,000 search names, then it's a very good chance that you might not get the same amount of return because we all know in the higher ed space that on the undergraduate side of the coin, the audience is changing and they're continuing to change. And not only is the audience changing, but so are uh, the rates of connectivity with different types of technology. Um, so essentially what our team has, has said here is that the key to success in many ways is not necessarily buying less. Uh, and then actually in some cases it could be buying more, but don't let me lose you there because I think the critical difference is that there are all sorts of ways for, for institutions to reduce their spend by zeroing their focus onto the group of students that is going to respond to a particular effort. So how we use that here at Capture is that we, in many cases for, for almost everything, and in fact, I might even be so bold as to say for everything, we put data and analytics and modeling behind every effort so that we're pinpointing who we're sending things to, who we're reaching out to, who we're sending digital to so that we're getting the students that have the most um, uh, the most potential to return and to to respond to what we're doing. Uh, so a great example is this direct mail, right? Like uh, when I was a director of admission, uh, one of the things that I like to do was to send, uh, sometimes I would send, there were, there were situations where I would send view books to everyone in my pipeline. I know, I know you're judging me right now. Like I get it. It's okay. <laughs> um, that let's just remember that that was uh, uh, ten years ago, or a little bit less than ten years ago. The in some good cases. old days. I the used good to old work days, for a new hood printer. We liked your money. It was green. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but what we found is that through the studies that we do, that really, if you have an audience of fifty thousand inquiries or thirty thousand inquiries. In many cases, the best practice is to take uh, direct mail and apply it only to the top 30%, maybe even less than that, because otherwise there's little, there's very little response that's coming from that bottom 70 or 80 percentile, 80% uh, of the students. So uh, in essence, what this, this massive piece of research that I'm reading, and it takes into account all sorts of uh, different uh, modalities and, and tools, direct mail and email and digital and all these things put together. And it says, it's not about just buying fewer. It's about keeping the pipeline on top, potentially the same, but understanding who's, what students need the attention and how do you pay that attention? And, and I'll stop by saying that one of the things that I always uh, talk about when I'm talking with uh, potential partners of, of Capture is that what we do best is to narrow the field. We help laser focus, you know, who it is that you should be paying attention to. And on the reciprocating side of that, uh, we also tell you who it is that's paying attention to you because that's 
uh, that demonstrated interest is a critical part of of our entire bundle of services and products here at Capture. So that's behind the curtain this week, folks. Um, uh, it, it is a it's a ma mammoth piece of research. So I love it. It's great. Good stuff. Well done, guys. Jamie, I just have to say that uh, your view books were not sustainable. Yes, the they definitely <laughs> that practice. It makes me a little bit sick to my stomach. I'm not going to lie. Actually, it makes me a lot sick to my stomach. Well, well, it's a new dawn. It's a new day. That's right. That's right. It is. Be smarter. Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode of The Buzz, Capture's podcast for higher ed. If you enjoy the show, please make sure and leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. Tweet to us at Capture Higher Ed with your comments or suggestions. And until next time, cheers.